And now hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel chapter 18, continuing our verse-by-verse study in 2 Samuel. Hear now God's holy word. And David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. But the people said, You shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, they will care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. Then the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for recording these uh, stories and this narrative and this history of your servant David. And we pray that we would find hope even in the middle of the messes of his life, that we would see how you brought out both mercy and justice, how you brought redemption out of this story. Father, guide us, we pray, to follow David's greater son, Jesus, that we might serve him as our king, as our perfect king, and that we might see him in this text as we study together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Seems kind of silly to admit this, but for some reason, for the longest time, I did not understand the phrase, you can't have your cake and eat it too. That always confused me. I didn't understand what that meant. Because I always thought have, you can't have your cake. I thought that was a synonym for eat. You know, like I have breakfast, I, I'll, I'll have a steak, you know, I'll have another drink, have. So I thought that was saying you can't eat your cake and eat it too. And it never made any sense to me. I'm sure m- many of you are way more clever than I am, but I'm not a clever man. And things like that confuse me until I realized, no, 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 wait a minute. Um, what it means is you can't keep your cake. You can't hold on to it and eat it. You can do one or the other. You can either eat your cake or you can put it back in the box it came in or back uh, on the, the cake pan. And that makes so much more sense. That phrase is actually a really old uh, turn of phrase in the English language. The first time it appears is in 1538 uh, in a letter from a duke to Thomas Cromwell. And and, and he said, a man cannot have his cake and eat his cake. Now, if they said it that way, I probably would have caught on a little bit quicker. But that phrase has been around for a while. What's neat when uh, you, you study little phrases like that is to find their parallels in other languages. So the Germans like to say, you can't dance at two different weddings at the same time, right? If, if you have a wedding uh, from this friend and a wedding uh, of this friend you, you, on the same Saturday, you can't be at both at the same time in the same place. That's wonderful. That's a good, that's a good one. The, the French talk about wanting the butter and the money from selling the butter. So, so you, can either, you can either have your butter or you can sell the butter and have the money, but you can't have both. But the Hungarian, the Hungarian is my favorite. Those uh, poetic Hungarians say, you can't ride two horses with one uh, backside. You, you can't ride two horses <laughs> with one posterior. And... That is my favorite. That's, that's the best one. 
All of these phrases, though, in all these different languages, they all express a fact of life. When we're all presented with situations where we have to decide one horse or the other, one wedding or the other, whether to eat our cake or put it back in the refrigerator, to do one thing or another, to be one thing or another, because we are not infinite and we do not have an infinite supply of cake or butter or, or backsides. We only have one. And you can love this thing or you can love that thing, but you can't love both equally at the same time. So we're often forced to choose one thing over another and hope and pray that we're choosing the greater thing, the better thing, the wiser thing, the thing that is most pleasing to God. Uh, Jesus put it much better than even the Hungarians. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve both God and the riches of this world and the power and the uh, uh, acclaim of this world. You can't have both. You can either have God or you can have the other, but you can't, you can't have both. Now, in our modern sensibilities, we listen to Jesus say that, and he says, you'll either hate the one or love the other. And we say, well, that's just a little bit extreme. What does that mean? A serving one master doesn't mean that you hate the other. We, we have this revulsion at the word hate. We, 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 we recoil at the word hate. And so when we see it in the Psalms, like when we read that God hates all workers of iniquity in the Psalms, and we sing that, or we sing Yahweh abhors uh, the, the bloodthirsty, we, we think, oh my goodness, that's kind of over, over the top isn't it? That's, that's too much. We object to the word hate because we don't fully understand what it means to love. If I love my master to the full extent of my capacity and the full extent of my ability, I can't serve another master with the same fervor. I can't give this master everything and then also give this other master everything, my time, my energy, the investment of myself in knowing what his will is and what it takes to serve him. You see, there are things we are called to love and uphold, and that requires us to reject the opposite. I love my wife, which means that I must therefore reject all other romantic relationships with every other single man or woman in the world. Obviously, everyone else uh, is, out, uh, is off limits. I am committed to my wife, and therefore I must reject everyone else. You see, the thing that, that I, I love must be at the center and I have to reject the opposite. Jesus, Jesus puts it even more boldly. Jesus calls for a level of dedication to himself that makes all other loves look like hate in comparison. What does Jesus say? He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And we want to say, slow down, Jesus. I can't, I, can't, I don't know what you mean by that. That's, that's so hard. That's so harsh. Now, of course, Jesus expects us to love our mother, father, brother, sister, wife, children. And yes, even our own life also, we love our lives. Uh, but, but our love for all these things comes such a far distant second to our love for him that it looks like hate. It looks like we despise all these things. And then right after that is when Jesus says, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. So that hating our life and giving up these things for him means we get all of them back and we enjoy them all in a new and full and perfect way. The only way we know how to love mother, father, sister, brother, wife, and children 
even our own life, the only way that we put those in proper perspective and priority is because we love him. And, and that's uh, what he is calling for. Now, I, I, I want us to think about all of this and, and meditate on this because in our studies in the life of David, he's been faced with just this kind of quandary. His son, at this point in his life, his son Absalom has rebelled against him. Absalom is trying to take the kingdom from his father, and he's threatening to kill his father. Now, as a king, David has this duty to execute justice on his son and put him to death. Absalom, at this point, has committed multiple sins worthy of death. But as a father... David wants to show compassion and mercy and tenderness to his son and maybe give him room to fix things, no matter how long it takes. Here's the problem. You can't do both. David wants to be king and he wants to be father. He wants to be dad and he wants to be a just ruler, but he can't do both. Now, not to be flippant, but he can't have his cake and eat it too. You cannot serve two masters. And so what happens is David ends up doing neither. He isn't really compassionate toward his son. Though he's trying to be a compassionate father, he keeps his son at arm's length. When, when Absalom runs away to another country and then he comes back for a short time, Abs, uh, David doesn't even look him in the eye. He doesn't even look him in the face. He keeps him at a distance. And then he isn't really fully righteously being uh, judicial toward his son in, in, in carrying out whatever judgment needs to be carried out against him for his sins. And so his passivity and his permissiveness nearly wrecks the kingdom. David is repeating the sin of Adam. He's failing to protect the bride. He's failing to protect the garden against this serpent. And the serpent's name is Absalom. The serpent is his own son. And his passivity and his indecision is actually far worse than choosing one or the other. You know, if, if he was actually uh, acting as a father, we could say, well, there's a way that that would go. And there's a, that's, that's, that would look like this. And if he was really being a king, well, that would look like this. But the problem here is that David hasn't done either. And we're going to get into what actually needs to happen uh, as we work through this. Well, as this chapter opens, chapter 18 uh, opens on, on David and the people that he's uh, with in the, uh, in the wilderness outside of, outside of Israel. He has crossed the Jordan River. And I always try to do like a backward map. If you, have, um, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, here is your west, here is your East, is that correct? So here is the main body of the tribes of Israel, and down here is the Jordan River. And there are a couple of tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan River, but David has passed from Jerusalem across the Jordan River all the way into Ammonite territory. So he's among the Ammonites, and you know he's already made friends, and he's got several allies with the Philistines. And the Ammonites have fed him, and they've given him protection. He's far outside of the boundaries of the kingdom of Israel. When David left Jerusalem, remember he had a cohort of 600 armed men. But as chapter 18 opens, you see that his army numbers in the thousands. What's happened? Well, he's gathered all of these allies from the Ammonites. Now, on the other side of the river, Absalom has gathered all the fighting men of Israel that he can muster, and he's personally pursuing his father out into the countryside across the river. David knows that his son is coming after him, so, so David pulls his captains together, his two nephews, Joab and Abishai, and his loyal friend Ittai the, from Gath, Ittai the Gittite. 
and he pulls them together. And he says, I'm going to divide the army. I'm going to divide all of the fighting force between you three. You three are my captains. And then David says, I want to go into the battle myself. He's got several reasons for this. First of all, where all of this started was back on his rooftop when he lusted after Bathsheba, when he stayed at home and should have been on the battlefield. And so he's trying to correct that. And he's trying to show his repentance for that by saying, you know what? I'm not laying back anymore. I'm going to go. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go to the battle. Uh, And secondly, he also wants to go face Absalom and deal with him personally, if possible, and even protect Absalom if he has the opportunity. David knows that if Joab lays hands on Absalom now, he's going to kill him. So David intends to go and he intends to be there. Maybe Joab won't kill my son in front of me. But everyone says to David, no way you're going. (laughs) Buddy, you're not going anywhere. You are worth 10,000 men to us now. You're the target. We're here to protect you. This is all about protecting you. The whole reason we're out here is to protect you. We're not going to march you out on the battlefield and then lose you. You're more help to us in the city. You see, if we run away and you're not with us, they're not going to pursue us. And if half of us die, they'll leave the rest of us alone but you're the one that they're after and you are staying put. You aren't going anywhere. So David has found among these Ammonites and among the countrymen that have gone with him, he's got a great amount of loyalty in these men. They really love him and they really want to fight for him and protect him. And David sees this and he relents and he says, okay, I'll stay here, but I want you to promise me something. You got to look me in the eye and you got to tell me that you're going to deal gently with Absalom. And you can almost see him looking directly in his eyes, contacting Joab's eyes and saying, I know what's on your mind. I know what you're thinking. And when you find my boy, when you find my son, Joab, you got to deal gently with him. You got to. Please, please promise me this if you find him. Uh, Well, everybody heard him say that. Everybody knows what the orders are. David loves his enemy. David loves his enemy, Absalom. That's pretty typical of David, isn't it? David's always loving his enemy, even Saul or Ishbosheth or Abner. Everyone who tries to do David wrong, he still loves. But he stresses it here because he knows what Joab is capable of. And again, this is, this is Daddy David speaking more than King David. Well, we're going to work through it verse by verse. So let's pick up in verse uh, 6. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. The battle was fought in Ephraim, and Ephraim was one of those tribes that uh, lapsed over or um, took up, straddled both sides of the Jordan River. And so they're in the, the woods of Ephraim. And here we are uh, having a battle between the servants of David, the, the men of, of Judah primarily, together with Ammonites and some Gittites and Philistines. Um, we have a battle between uh, Judahites and Ephraimites. There, there have been cracks in the relationship between the north and the south in Israel from the beginning. And here those cracks show up again. And the kingdom only has about 40 more years before it's completely broken into two parts. But if you pay attention through the narrative of the scriptures, you see that it wasn't just you know, Rehoboam that, that split the kingdom. It, these cracks are there long before. 
The battle is scattered all over the plain, and then we find that even the forest of Ephraim, the forest is fighting on David's side. The forest devours more men than the sword. That's why we never have to worry about having the best weapons or the most advanced weapons or the most refined fighting skills. If we're fighting a just war and the Lord is on our side, even the trees will fight for us. Now, I don't even, I don't really know what that means, honestly. I don't, that, that the woods devoured more people. You know where my mind goes as a, you know, a Tolkien fan, right? You know, I'm thinking the, you know, Treebeard and the Ents are, are helping David out, but that's not the case at all. That's not the way it works. Um, uh, I wonder if, there was a dense fog in the trees. Were, were David's men better at fighting in the trees? I don't know. But somehow creation itself is helping David, just as the creation helped Joshua and his men in their battles. So now David is helped by creation. The term used here is the woods. Literally, it says the woods ate the men. The woods consumed the men. And look at what a contrast that is. When, when David crossed the Jordan, he received food and he ate plenty. When Absalom crosses over the Jordan, his troops were eaten, right? David goes across and he feasts. Absalom goes across and he is eaten. And eventually Absalom his, himself is going to be eaten by the forest. So maybe in this next verse, we have a clear idea of what happens, what it looks like to be eaten by a tree, eaten by the forest. Verse nine, Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree. That's another word for an oak tree. His, uh, and his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth and the mule which was under him went on. Now Absalom is riding a mule. We've already pointed this out that God's kings ride on donkeys because you're not supposed to uh, mount up and collect lots of horses and chariots as God's king. You're forbidden from collecting horses. Well, Absalom doesn't have a horse, but he does, he's not riding a donkey either. He's halfway there. A mule is half donkey, half horse. So he's halfway to a horse. And this mule leads him right into an oak tree and his head gets tangled in the branches of the oak and the mule keeps going out from under him. I've always imagined reading this in the past of, of Absalom's hair getting tangled in the branches and him hanging there by his hair, by his long hair, which we already know he's really proud of his hair. He, he grows his hair out. He's, he's very vain about his hair. So, so that's already part of his character that, that's been established. And I think I saw that in a Sunday school book illustration somewhere of, of Absalom hanging by his hair in a tree. Uh, but the, the text actually says his head got caught in the tree, which, which makes more, more sense. I can't imagine the full weight of a man, not to be too graphic about it, but I can't imagine the full weight of a man being supported by his hair in a tree, no matter how thick his hair is. It seems like that would just rip right out of his head, maybe. But there is poetic justice here in that the man who had all this false glory on his head, all this concern about his hair, he gets tangled up in this way. His head gets tangled in the in the branch, in the bough. So it's, easily, it's easy to imagine his great head of hair is involved in the picture. His head and his hair are both caught up in the boughs of the tree. So the sense seems to be that his mule, he's riding his mule through this dense forest. And as he's riding it, the mule 
runs him straight into the crook or the crotch of a tree and his head slams into the bow and, and in a fork of an oak tree with enough force to, to trap him there. And he's trapped there in the, in the branches. And this picture is so ripe with meaning. Here's another violent, angry man, another serpent dying by a head wound. We're, we're told the serpent's going to get his head crushed. And here's another one. We see this. Absalom is a satanic king. Absalom is a false Nazarite warrior whose pseudo-glorious head traps him in the end. And just like Saul's head was removed, now Absalom is caught by his head. And there he hangs between heaven and earth. Hanging in a tree, Absalom is rejected by earth and heaven. Earth won't have him. Heaven doesn't want him either. He's stuck right there in between. Uh, The royal mule runs out from under him, a sign that he has lost the reins of the kingdom. According to Deuteronomy, one who hangs in a tree is cursed of God. And Paul will later use that reference to, to, uh, in reference to Jesus. But here is Absalom, a false savior. He's a false Messiah. He's not the true savior of Israel. Absalom is anything but a prince of peace. He doesn't do the will of his father. He disobeys and he hates his father, but he's cursed now hanging on a tree. And that's where he is when someone finds him. Verse 10. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, you just saw him? And why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai saying, beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. For there's nothing hidden from the king and you yourself would have set yourself against me. One of David's men sees Absalom hanging there in the tree. We don't know if Absalom's conscious or not at this point. But the man sees this and he goes and tells Joab. Now everybody heard, everybody heard the command of David to Joab concerning Absalom. So the man tells Joab what he saw. He says, I didn't do anything to Absalom. I'm just reporting. I'm just telling you what I saw. And Joab is incredulous. He says, you saw him hanging there and you didn't kill him. I mean, he could get down. He could get away. I would have paid you 10 shekels of silver and I would have given you a belt. And we think, a belt? What are you talking about, a belt? But think of like a big, you know, world wrestling belt or some, you know, like a big cowboy belt with a, like a melted down Buick as a buckle. Think about <laughs> something, a big, something you'd really be proud of, a championship belt. And I would have given you 10 shekels of silver in this championship belt. Uh, even before Absalom is dead, Joab is off, uh, ready to offer a reward for his death. How many times has Joab gone against David's explicit instructions. Joab doesn't care what David says. Joab is always going to do the opposite. And, and it's David's failure to deal with this crazy man a long time ago that's, that's partly responsible for, for a lot of these problems. But um, the man who saw Absalom, he righteously responds to Joab. He says, you would have offered me 10 shekels, buddy. I wouldn't have taken 10,000 shekels to kill Absalom. I wouldn't have taken it. You heard the king, I heard the king. And I know what happens to people who kill royalty. And when it came time to give account to the king and let him know what just happened, I know you wouldn't stand up for me. You would say, I don't know, I just came and Absalom was dead and he would kill me where I stand. I know what kind of man you are, Joab, and I'm not doing it. I'm not doing this. So verse 14, Joab said, 
I cannot linger with you. Joab doesn't have any patience. I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears, literally three darts in his hand, and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Joab's fresh out of patience. He doesn't have any problems ignoring David's order. So he takes three darts and he thrusts them through Absalom's heart. And then he says to the men around him, have at him, boys. And 10 more men, uh, who could be Joab's personal guard, 10 more men surround the prince, surround Absalom, and they strike him and kill him. Now, by, by getting these other guys to help, Joab is kind of spreading out the responsibility for Absalom's death. Because David's going to ask, okay, who killed my son? And Joab can answer, well, you know, it's hard to say. It was really, you know, so many people around. There's so much distraction. There's so much confusion. I mean, David, you know how it gets in battle. I'm not, I'm not really sure how it happened. Now, it's important to note that this Joab, who is so ready to kill Absalom, is the very same Absalom who pleaded with David to get Absalom to come back home. He, he, he pleaded, he thought, if we don't get Absalom back home, then we're going to have a crisis in the kingdom because everybody's worried about what's going to happen when David dies. We've got to get Absalom back. Uh, we, we, we have to make sure that there's no crisis here. Now, as far as Joab is concerned, Absalom is expendable and it's, and it's necessary for the peace of the kingdom to get rid of him. You see, this is what happens when you just follow your gut. When you aren't interested in God's law, when you aren't interested in, in biblical wisdom, when you aren't interested in following God's spirit and understanding his word, when you're just, you know, you just fly by anecdotes and, and pop culture wisdom, and you're just following your gut, it, you, you just end up contradicting yourself over and over and over and over and going back and forth. And this is the kind of man Joab is. It's just another layer in this ever increasingly frustrating character that we see in Joab. Um, because, you know, you wonder, where, where do you stand? What is, what is going on in your head? Verse 16. So Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel. For Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said... I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it is called Absalom's monument. So they take Absalom down from the tree, they throw him in a pit, and they cover his body with stones. This is the burial of a cursed man. Whenever there's an execution by stoning, you leave the cairn of stones. You leave the pile of stones there as a monument. This is what happens when you violate God's law. You get executed. Remember, Achan was stoned to death way back at Jericho, and Achan was buried under a pile of stones. The king of Ai was hanged on a tree, and then he was thrown into a pit, and then he was covered with a pile of stones. Here again, Absalom dies the same way. Absalom, the really charismatic guy, the life of the party, the man who uh, opposes the king, dies like an executed criminal. He dies the curse of a, of, a, of a cursed man. He dies the death of a cursed man. Now there's some irony here. There are two heaps of stones mentioned, right? There's a pile of stones that covers Absalom's body, but there's another pile of stones that, that Absalom set up himself. Because Absalom didn't have a son to memorialize him and carry on his name, he sets up a monument to himself. 
And he thinks, this is going to be my legacy. This is, going to be, this is going to keep my name alive. Since I don't have a son to keep my name alive, this is going to keep my name alive in the world. But the real memorial is the pile of rocks that causes us to remember the wrath of God. One other observation about this, Absalom is not the only man in these chapters who goes down into a pit. Remember the sons of the priests hid in a pit. And Hushai told Absalom in the last chapter, he said, your father is out there hiding in a pit. David had a reputation for hiding in caves when he was running from Saul. The difference between the sons of the priests and David hiding in pits and Absalom going down into a pit is this. If you're faithful and obedient, you go down into a pit, but you get to come out again. You sacrificially go into a death-like situation. You're buried, you're covered over with the earth, but you get resurrected. Now, Absalom is the opposite of that. He exalts himself all the time, and he only goes down when he's forced to, and he doesn't get back up again because he's covered with rocks. Now, all that's left to do is to tell David what took place. Verse 19, then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, let me run now and take the news to the king, how Yahweh has avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said to him, you shall not take the news this day. For you shall take the news another day, but today you shall take no news because the king's son is dead. Ahimahaz is the son of the priest, remember, who, who has been David's zealous supporter all the way through. And now he wants to be the one to share the, the news with David. And he thinks this is good news because the conflict is over. For some reason, he doesn't seem to understand the delicate nature of the situation. And also, to his credit, he doesn't know all the details. He just shows up here. He was removed from the scene and he didn't know what happened back at the tree. All he knows is the battle is over. And as a young man, he may not appreciate the history of David's record on how he responds to the death of his beloved enemies. What happened, think back, what happened to the messenger who gave word to David of Saul's death. Remember what happened to that guy? He died. What happened to the messenger who told David about the death of Ishbosheth? Oh, he died too. So David wisely says, nobody, you stay back. And he picks a Cushite. Cush is modern day Ethiopia. So he picks an Ethiopian to go run the news to David. He says, let's send a stranger. Let's send a Gentile. So let's pick it up with verse 21. <coughs> mm. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go, tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. And Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, but whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So Joab said, why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? But whatever happens, he said, let me run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Joab sends the Cushite, the Ethiopian, to run the news to David, but Ahimaaz still presses him, and he says, I want to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to be there when the, when the king sees that the conflict is over. And Joab says, okay, what harm is there going to be? I mean, this Jewish kid is not going to outrun this Ethiopian. I mean, let's just be honest. He's not going to get there first, right? But he does. He gets there before him. The Cushite took a direct route through the very same woodsy plain that they just fought in, but Ahimaaz took the way of the plains, so it might have been farther, but it was faster to go, and he beats the Cushite by minutes. It's like the Cushite took the you know, two-lane country road, and Ahimaaz takes the interstate, and he gets there ahead of time. Now, when they get there, 
the phrase good news keeps coming up. It keeps popping up. This is good news. The enemy has been defeated. That's what the gospel is, right? Good news that the enemy has been vanquished. So let's pick it up in verse 24. David was sitting between the two gates and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted up his eyes and looked and there was a man running alone. Then the watchman cried out and told the king and the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. Good news. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there is another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimehaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and he comes with good news. So Ahimehaz called out and said to the king, all is well. Then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, blessed be Yahweh your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord, the king. The king said, is the young man Absalom safe? You see what's on David's mind. Yeah, I don't want to hear about what else went on. I, I just want to hear about it. Absalom. Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant and me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, there is good news, my lord, the king, for Yahweh has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. Well, you know what he said. May, may all the enemies be like him. And of course, that means he's dead. David is waiting in the city gates. Remember, like Eli waited for news to come back from the battle with the Philistines. Uh, he sees Ahimehaz and he thinks, ah, good news. Why? If it's just one man, it's good news. If it's one man running toward the city, that's great. If it's 5,000 men running toward the city, that means there's somebody behind them chasing them and we got to lock the gates. But if it's just one man, it's fine. Well, uh, then he sees another, uh, another man. Ah, more news. David says to him, how's it going? Well, everything's fine. The men that oppose you have been overthrown. What about Absalom? Well, I'm not really sure. There was a big tumult and that's all I know. And David says, okay, stand over here and let's wait till the other guy gets here. The Cushite lays it out in plain speech with all kinds of emotional distance. And he says, it's over. And yeah, uh, the, the man, the prince is dead. The final verse here is David's response. And we'll stop uh, in the text here. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And David's lament goes on into the next chapter. We're going to look at it next week. We're, we're going to stop here today. But I want to point out one criticism that Joab is going to make. Joab is going to rebuke David for weeping like this, saying, David, why are you always crying over your enemies? It seems to me that if we all died and Absalom were alive, that you wouldn't be weeping like this. You would be rejoicing for Absalom. And, and here's what's so frustrating about Joab is he's like a broken clock. He's right about twice a day. And, and here he's right. Uh, and, and I think he has a point here. In David's permissiveness for his sons and in his failure to deal with his sons, he has allowed his role as father to eclipse his higher calling his ordination, his anointed duty as king. David the father is in conflict with David the king, and as a result, the kingdom has suffered. 
David knew that Absalom deserved to die, but he couldn't bring himself to carry out the judgment against him. Now, there's one other option that would have been merciful and just at the same time, and there's pretty good biblical precedent for it. Remember, back when Absalom killed his brother Amnon, David could have dealt with it and sentenced Absalom to banishment. You leave and you never come back. Well, what's the precedent for that? Remember, Cain killed his brother Abel. But God didn't destroy Cain. God didn't kill Cain, but he did banish him, right? He said, you go away and you have to build your city somewhere else. You go out in the world and you can survive out there, but you can't stay here in the land with your mother and father. That's not going to work. You're going to corrupt everyone else here and we can't have you here. You can't be back here. Uh, but, but you go out and you go build your city somewhere else. And that's a principle of mercy that, that we have to use in the church sometimes uh, because we don't, we don't have, God hasn't given the church the sword, but we do have the keys of the kingdom. And sometimes in church discipline, we have to say, you have to go and you have to go away, far away. And you go build your city somewhere else, but you're not going to build your city here. You're not going to build your kingdom here. You need to be far away because you are a corrupting influence. You are a hateful person or you are a, 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 a heretical person. So you can't, you can't do that here. You need, to, you need to go away. Now, that's what David could have done with Absalom. And I think there would have been biblical precedent to do that. I think he could point to Cain and he could say, I'm, I, I just can't destroy Absalom, but I'm going to send him away. And remember, there was a short self-imposed banishment for Absalom. Remember, when he killed Amnon, he went to Gesher, right? Absalom went to be with his mom's people. He could have survived there. He could have built his kingdom there. But he doesn't stay out there in the world. He doesn't build his city out there where the where Cain does. He comes back into the land, permitted by his father, invited by his cousin Joab. And now he's going to try to build a kingdom. He's going to try to set up a city. And he tries to set it up in the land and therefore corrupts the land. The solution was distance. The solution was you can't behave that way. You can't be this way and be in full communion with the king and with his people. You can't do that here. You have to go away and we have to be far away from you and you from us. That's, that's one possible solution. David has been ordained by God to be the king. He's been ordained by God to be the priestly guardian of the land. David's duty is to protect the garden and protect the bride from serpents. And the fact that Absalom goes into the bride, he goes into his, his father's concubines and corrupts the bride is proof that he is, uh, further proof that he is a serpent. But David passively lets the serpent back in. He doesn't stand up to Joab and he doesn't deal with Absalom. He waits for Absalom to take matters into his own hand. And yes, even while we can sympathize with David, boy, I... When you read his grief here, my, uh, I get a lump in my throat in a way that I don't get when I'm reading some of the Psalms, and David is likewise weeping. But, but the Hebrew text doesn't often do this, right? When you, my son, my son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. That's, there's a, there's a, 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 a raw, that's the tenderness there that you don't see in a lot of places. And, and it's, I just can't imagine his grief. But what David is trying to reconcile and what's impossible for him is to be both a faithful king who executes righteousness and a compassionate father who saves his son. That's what David can't be. He doesn't have a way to destroy the sin and yet save the sinner. He cannot atone for the sin and love his son. 
He wishes he does. David wishes he had this way. That's why he cries, if only I had died in your place. If David could have offered himself to atone for the sins of his son, he would have. But you see, he can't. Why not? It's because David is not an acceptable sacrifice. It's not possible for David to do this. David is not a perfect sacrifice. Well, what does this all point us to? I think it's rather obvious then. This tension here points us to Jesus. This tension points us to the cross. Only because of the cross is there a way to both destroy our sin and save us. Only our king can die for us in our place. Our king has offered himself in such a way that we don't have to be exiled because he is the perfect suitable sacrifice. His death makes a way for all these tensions to resolve. Only because of the cross can we draw near to our king and have all these tensions go away. We draw near to our father and we have fellowship with him despite our rebellion. Only because of the cross can we be trusted around each other. That's why, you know, I ought to to be far away from y'all, not corrupting you because of my sin. And you need to be far away from me, not corrupting me. But why is it that we can abide together in communion together? Because of the cross, if indeed we have repented and apply the gospel in our relationships. But see, that's the problem, isn't it? Is that we're always bouncing between those two poles. We do it with our children. We do it in the church. We do it with employees and with work situations. We do it, we do it all the time. We do it with family members. We're either all the way you know, compassionate and gracious and, and forgiving and you know, uh, uh, just uh, uh, there's another word I'm looking for, but just giving and giving and giving. You know, the, you know over, overly merciful. We're either that or we're harsh, bitter, angry disciplinarians. All the, we, we, we bounce between these two poles because we don't have this figured out. We don't have this, uh, this, this self-sacrificial uh, uh, model embedded in us the way, that, the way that Jesus shows us. In Psalm 85, I was reading this this morning, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. And where does that happen ultimately? Righteousness and peace kiss at the cross. Mercy and truth are joined together at the cross where, where God the Father can both say, I completely, absolutely judge and condemn your sin and I accept you as my son. I do both. Why? It's because Jesus has carried all of the guilt and all of the weight of our sin and he, is, he has absorbed it into himself and God has judged our sin on the cross. That's how we have acceptance with the Father. It's only by and through the cross that any of these tensions can be resolved. So that God is not simply waving his hand and say, oh, forget about that. Oh, that's not a big deal. No, he says, it's serious. We have to deal with it. And we're going to deal with it this way at the cross. So in our conflicts and in our confusion, if our contribution to our relationships isn't shaped like the cross, where, where justice and, and, and uh, mercy and truth meet, where righteousness and peace kiss. If our, if our contribution to our relationships is not shaped like the cross, then we're con- contributing chaos and we're contributing death. Only, only where we have a cruciform contribution, only where we're behaving like Jesus, can we have life and peace 
and rest. And that's the tension that, that is here in this text that gets resolved at the cross. And that's, that's why there's so much confusion here in these Old Testament books is because we, we don't have all this put together yet, but we do see it in Jesus. All of this cries out for the cross. And now we who have known the Savior know uh, and, and have had the revelation that, yeah, this is, this is how God works this out. And let's give thanks for that. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to continue to uh, show us Jesus and, and continue to conform us to his image so that, so that we don't, don't have this conflict, we don't have this tension, that we know how uh, you uh, deal with sin and how you have uh, dealt with our sin in nailing it to the cross of Jesus. So may we uh, live cruciform lives. May we live lives informed by and filled by uh, the gospel in all of our dealings with each other and our dealings with the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.